Growing Pains, Australia, 1914 to 1949 by Blake Hamilton. Prologue. Our most important history is our own. The early 20th century played host to the death of empires, the rise of dictators, and our acceleration towards the modern world we know today. However, what is often forgotten is the human stories, what it must have been like to go through these changes. These four connected stories of Jack, De Groot, Tatsuo and Rosie will enlighten and surprise you, shining a light on Australia's changing attitudes towards national identity, politics, racism, gender roles and alliances. Chapter 1. Australia, a land of heroes. Sydney, Australia, 1929. We find ourselves in a typical pub on the outskirts of Australia's largest capital city. Corporal Jack Miller of the 6th Australia Brigade has agreed to this interview on the grounds that he gets to knock back a few beers while spinning his yarn. Cheers, mate. <sighs> right, where do we start? You probably want me to tell you about Gallipoli. What a hellhole that place was. Johnny Turk had a sitting ducks on that beachhead for months. Barely made any headway towards Constantinople. You mean Istanbul? No, it was still officially Constantinople back then. Anyway, the name makes no difference to me. I never saw the place. Can you tell us about what it was like coming home? Well, Australia found itself on the side of the victorious allies in 1919. I was deployed for two years first training in Egypt, then Gallipoli, and finished with a small stint on the Western Front. You probably won't believe me, but when those guns finally fell silent and you could hear yourself think again, there was not a single cheer. We were empty, flat as a tack, broken bodies, now we had no purpose. I guess I can't complain too much. Australia was, after all, a pretty good place to return to after the war, compared to places we were leaving behind in Europe. That being said, that first year after the gun stopped was anything but peaceful. Spanish flu, empires collapsing, revolutions, strikes and a civil war in Ireland to boot. Australia had its share of chaos too. Unemployment and inflation were sky high and normal people understand our sacrifice but didn't understand what it was like to try and just get on with it. One time I found myself in a fist fight with some reds at a pub in Circular Quay. Those bastards were trying to start a revolution here, just like the Russians had done in 1917. They needed a right good serve. You just got to remember that at the time, this was pretty common. I had one mate that got into this massive blue in Brisbane. You know the red flags, right? A few thousand of us versus the Reds at the Russian club. Cops had to come in and break it up in the end. Fights like that don't really die down until little Billy started up the RSLs. A place for soldiers, not ungrateful bastards. Did you take up the offer of a soldier settlements when you got home? Sure did, but what a waste of time that was. The government was pushing its new agenda of populating the empty space, crown land to ex-soldiers so they could live a quiet and manual life in the countryside, and as a bonus, bolster the nation's growing agricultural industry. But the block I got was nothing like the homesteads on the posters. They gave you a scrap of bush and scrub that needed clearing and burning. No connection to any infrastructure or modern life, just a tin shack, and a bucket load of debt and depression. No wonder one third of the soldiers just packed it in and left by 1927. Life was better in the trenches. Where did you go after that? 
Well, I managed to get a job from the big fella, Jack Lang, working on the new bridge going up in the harbour. Nothing too technical, just a labourer carting steel and equipment back and forth to the worksite. I've got to say, it looks bloody magnificent now that it's all done. Nine years it took to build. It gave me enough money to move into the inner city slums, where I really got to witness the modern world moving on without me. What do you mean? Times were a-changing, my friend, with the rural dream falling flat on its ass. More people were moving to the city than ever before. Plus, we were part of the global community now, not subjects in the British Empire, but a nation in our own right. Like many young pups, we were still taking a lot of cues from dad, king and country. But the Americans, they were cool. Short skirts, fast cars, movie, jazz and Charleston. And don't get me started on the flappers. Girls that made the old biddies huff and puff so much that it would have blown down the Great Dividing Range. Those hedonistic, selfish and fast women were destroying the fabric of good society, they would say. Just between you and me, I'd seen a lot worse in France. Was that all the women? Not really. Australia came out of the Great War more conservative, not less. The moral panic was often dealt with by the copper or just plain old social pressure. The women that had more time to do modern things were the one that had money to spend on all the new technology that was coming out of the newly tooled factories abroad. Not Australian factories. Men, money and markets. Remember that was Bruce's slogan when the little digger got the boot. Poor Billy pushed the conscription issue too hard and after the settlement schemes failed, he had to go. Bruce was a businessman from Melbourne that had planned to do three things. Attract more men from the motherland to fill the spots of Australia that soldiers refused to live in. Borrow more money from the motherland to build new roads, rail and bush settlements. And finally double down hard on agriculture for exports. Leave manufacturing to the Brits and the Yanks. Did he also support the continuation of the Immigration Restriction Act? Have you been listening, mate? Things here on a social level have barely shifted. Australia is a nation founded by white, hard-working men that tamed the land for king and country. Only difference now is that we had gone through the baptism of fire and earned some respect. What do you think about the action made by Billy Hughes at the League of Nations? The League is a joke and you know it, mate. Equity for all men? I'm sorry, but that is just not how the world works. Plus, the Yank that proposed the whole thing did not even manage to get his own country to join. The League was good for trade, punishing the Germans and getting us New Guinea. 60,000 diggers paid for that with their lives. And you know what they didn't give their lives for? The feeling of some Jap or Chinaman hoping to change our way of life. What about the Aboriginals? <sighs> Look, I'm no expert on the politics and methods of the Aboriginal Protection Board. All I know is, is that the natives would not have been happy living in the cities with us anyway. I mean, whitefellas have been bluing with them for over a century now. Not to mention some bloke the other day told me they were almost extinct. The ones that were left were on reserves run by board. What about the half-castes? I served with one. This bloke was half-caste, not full-blood. Remember how they let the half- and quarter-castes fight in France about a year into the war? Simon was his name, and he did tell me a bit about the missions. He couldn't really travel much, and he always needed permission from the board to move around, find work, hell, even get married. When he left the mission, he was also barred from returning. I told him that sounded like a good thing. He didn't respond, just looked down at his shoes. We didn't talk much more after that. Do you support the Native Union? Look, while I don't think it's right that those poor buggers on those stock routes are getting paid in food and clothing, I mean, a job's a job, and you should get paid. I can't see how all these strikes and walkouts are going to achieve anything. Why are they risking their jobs? 
The union would say citizenship, inclusion in public education, legal rights, and the removal of the abolishment of the protection board. Seems like a lot of change all at once. I just don't know if after everything that has happened, how they will look after themselves. I think we have everything we need. Thank you, Jack, for this interview. It's been fantastic to get your perspective. What's in store for you next? Well, I've got some cash saved up, so I was going to have a pun of the market to see if I can get a leg up. Everyone seems to be making it big these days. Why not me? I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Chapter 2 why I Became a Fascist Sydney, Australia, 1938 It is late in the afternoon, rain is setting in, and we are sitting in a department store managed by Francis de Groot in Pitt Street, Sydney. The smell of Queensland maple is unmistakable as we sit around the fire surrounded by several handcrafted pieces of furniture. I did what I did in the name of the decent and respectable people of New South Wales. Not for fame, not for money, but to make a point that this country was forgetting its roots. I assume that you're referring to the 1932 bridge incident, yes? Well, what else could I be referring to? You know they called me insane, tried to send me off to some nuthouse, disguising myself in military dress, infiltrating the procession, passing the watchful eyes of the governor, and stealing the limelight from Lang was not insanity, but brilliance. I opened the bridge for the people, not some socialist agenda, and in any case, they let me go. Public opinion was on my side. Is it really fair to say that you had the majority of public support? Well, let's look that in the context, shall we? The beginning of 1930 was an economic disaster on a scale unseen in this country. When the Americans began to call in their loans, and by extension Britain as well, investment and capital just dried up. All that money was borrowed under Stanley Bruce now came due, under Scullin's new government. And I tell you what the union boys, they couldn't handle. That's quite harsh, don't you think? The bill that you're speaking of was passed down by the previous government spending. Well, when I served in the army and became a captain, you didn't sit around and blame the last bloke for your situation. You got on with the job because people's lives depended on it. And in any case, it was the previous government's fault that Scullin Treasurer's Ted Theodore was found guilty of fraud the night before the budget was handed down. Even when they tried to manage the debt levels, they couldn't control their own man in New South Wales. Lang completely ignored the Premier's plan, which was going to make paying back the debt to England a priority, and instead started spending more money. You're referring to the plan to cut the pension by 10%, increase taxes, reduce government spending and reduce the wages of all Australians across the country? Yeah, yes, yes. And, and instead, Lang wanted to increase the minimum wage for workers, place a pause on evictions for landlords, abolish school fees, add an additional pension for widows, and add more infrastructure projects that we just couldn't afford. He also attempted to alter the float of the currency by ignoring our gold reserves and putting worth on other commodities instead. It was just madness. No wonder the Governor-General had to step in and remove him. 
That really didn't occur under the Scullin government, though. Yeah, that's fair. Scullin's, well, how did he put it? Nightmare. His nightmare was over now, and Lyons was in charge. He had the will to step in and control the situation and implemented the Financial Agreement Enforcement Act, which took control of state funds away from Lang and put it under federal control. And you know what that crook Lang did? Him and his union thugs broke into the state treasury. They literally removed all the cash and stored it at the union trade hall under the guard of armed thugs, which attacked federal police, mind you. Uh, but you see, Langwood argued that with the treasury robbed by the federal government, with loans to be repaid by the state, the state could no longer pay its government employees and unpaid labour was in violation of the 1833 prohibition on slavery. Oh, what a joke! A man pays his debts, and this country is only as good as its promises. That's why I had to act. That's why I did what I did on the bridge, to remind this country of its promises. Okay, okay. Let's go back a bit and talk about your views on those years. As an employer yourself, with about 200 workers, surely you had to lay some people off yourself. Well, of course I had to lay people off. Everyone did. People were tightening their belts and furniture was falling off the shopping list for many households. I probably let about half my employees go, and I know some of them ended up on the sasso. As a man, I cannot think of anything more shameful. Admitting you were a failure for handouts uh, from the Commonwealth, most of them were just bludgers in my estimates. Yeah, but what about all the shanty towns being built in the wasteland areas around the cities? Shacks being made from corrugated iron and hessian bags? These people look like they sold everything to try to get by, and you're calling them bludgers? Well, now, now, don't go putting words in my mouth. In a state with 40% unemployment, the government should at least be making them do something for the money. I mean, that's why they're set up in work camps, right? Get the men building rail lines, clearing bush, cleaning sewerage. I mean, I heard they even sent blokes with equipment out in the bush for prospecting. Well, listen here, Francis. I have some recent statistics suggesting that while the working-class suburbs like Richmond and Melbourne, unemployment hit around about 32%, the unemployment has been a lot milder in the middle-class suburbs in places like Brighton, under 20% unemployment. And in some of the upper-class suburbs, they've hardly noticed any changes at all. Do you see why so many people would be empathising with the communist message of class struggle at this point in time? Yeah, well, those sympathisers had the situation all mixed up. It wasn't about class. It was about white men having their jobs taken away and given to foreigners. Here comes all those Italians, the Slabs, the Greeks from abroad, offering to undercut the working man on wages, as well as bring their troubles with them. Just look at what those Italians did to the sugar industry up in North Queensland. Even the unions finally saw sense to set up employment targets at 75% for British and Australian workers only. You really don't think that the violence didn't go too far? Like in Kalgoorlie, the whole town being set ablaze after three days of race riots in 1934, and British migrants are being forced to return home after the last five years because they too were being accused of stealing jobs. 
I mean, you're a migrant yourself. No, no, I'm an Australian soldier. I earned my right to work and live in this country, and I don't appreciate you implying otherwise. Okay, okay, Francis, it's not an attack. I'm just trying to understand your point of view. What attracted you to the New Guard and fascism? Well, I was attracted to the New Guard and the leadership of Eric Campbell because it was working abroad. Even Menzies would support my views on that. In fact, here are a few newspaper clippings and quotes of my own. 1938. Federal Attorney General Robert Menzies visits the country of Germany and was enthused about the spiritual quality in in the willingness of Germans to devote themselves to the service and well-being of the state. Look at this one, Sydney Morning Headline. Sydney Morning Herald headline. Italy was only saved from red dominance by the heroic remedy of fascism. William Mackay, the New South Wales Police Commissioner, establishes the first police boys club, modelled on the Nazi Labor Youth Battalions, which he admired because they, quote, subordinate the individual to the welfare of the nation. And Mackay's fellow police commissioner in Victoria, Thomas Blamey, headed the League of National Security, of which I'm a part today. So, don't you see that Hitler and Mussolini are servants to their nation, crushing the socialist movements and keeping the unions in check? I mean, a few years ago, you couldn't go anywhere in Sydney without seeing CPA thugs marching down the streets and occupying government buildings. Hold on, hold on now. You're twisting the facts a little bit. You're talking about the unemployment workers movement, and they were protesting things like poor rations, rights for women in work, and an end to that humiliating questionnaire that you needed to claim the doll. No, no, no. The UWM is a front for the CPA, and in any case, it's just as radical. The Labor Party cannot even stand Thou's gangs in Newcastle and Wollongong demanding a Soviet Republic in Australia, no less. Lucky for us, the message mostly fell on deaf ears. Francis, please calm down, sit down. I didn't mean to get you so worked up. Oh, no. I think it's time for you to leave, good sir. I have said all I had to say. Chapter 3. Shifting Alliances The National Rose Garden, Canberra. 3rd of September, 1945. We sit on a white bench on the edge of a circle. The circle is shades of crimson red, snow white and the most vivid pink. Tatsuo Kawi has agreed to this interview with me on the day following his release from house arrest. Are you aware that these roses were planted in 1933? Thousands of roses which have not known a world without war or global conflict until today, that is. I don't mean to dampen your sentiment, Tatsuo, but World War II did not begin until 1939. These roses were at least six years old. Really, if you were to ask a Chinese person what year the start of the war was, some might say 1931 with the Japanese invasion of northern China, or the beginning of total war in Shanghai in 1937, or what about the Spanish Civil War in 1936, when the Hitler and Mussolini tested their methods for terror bombing, which would come to Great Britain in 1940. 
1939 simply marks the date when appeasement no longer became a viable strategy for the Allies. Okay, seeing as you're the expert on dates, where would you like this story to begin? July 13, 1941. That is the day I arrived in Australia, coupled with my new appointment as Envoy Extraordinary and Minister Plenipotentiary. I can see you are confused. I was a lead ambassador to Australia from Japan with the task of maintaining diplomatic channels. My first duty upon arrival was to meet with the Australian executive leadership and with Prime Minister Menzies out of the country, the next logical person was John Curtin, leader of the opposition. Everyone called him Jack, which I thought was strange as it was not his given name. You Australians are often quite hard to decipher at times. A tall man with a commanding voice and a condition which made his eyes cross. John and I became close allies and were able to reach agreements such as boosting trade and allowing Japanese access to iron ore in Western Australia. These, of course, would be in exchange for Japan guaranteeing Australia's safety. I also know what you might think about my intention in Australia, promising agreements of safety while having a history of supporting expansionism. The truth is that I had grown tired of hearing the word drive to describe Japan's intentions, and with almost two years of war under our belts in China, I could see that the military was gearing up for a more ambitious plan, one that I could not in good conscience support and would try to avoid at all costs. Did you spend any time with Menzies before his resignation? No. After Britain declared war on the Nazis, the three Australian divisions were committed to North Africa and Greece. Menzies had his hands full with six months of travelling and head clashes with Churchill. The Bulldog was willing to leave the Dominions to fight for themselves, even making it plain as day to Menzies that India was the bigger priority for reinforcements in the Pacific. The entire South Pacific was an acceptable loss when the heart of the empire was under such a tremendous threat. Do you feel as if Menzies was gone too long? Menzies miscalculated the situation at home, and while he was a hero in London, the disasters in Libya and Greece campaign sealed his fate regarding the opinion of the Australian public. He believed that party politics should be suspended in a time of war so that he could invest all his efforts toward the crisis. That, unfortunately, is not how a democracy works. Menzies did, however, realize that his political grave had already been dug, and rather than being pushed in, he decided to jump. After that, a Faden barely moved into the lodge for the month he was the steward PM, and John became Prime Minister by a slim majority on the 7th of October that year. At what point did you assess the things in your nation were becoming more militaristic? 21 days after John became Prime Minister, Tojo became the effective shogun of Japan. His will became the army's will, with zero democratic oversight. This is the point at which I confided in John. I told him that I had concluded that the momentum may have gone too far based on what I had seen at the Anglo-Japanese talks in Washington, D.C. 
This is the strongest signal I could safely provide regarding my concerns of imminent military action in the Pacific. Curtin had warned about a potential war in the Pacific for years, and with two months on the job before the attack, in your estimate, did he use the time to prepare wisely? I cannot say that in the two months before Pearl Harbor, John did anything of great significance regarding preparing Australia for war with the Empire of Japan. The Australians were fully prepared to sell out the sovereignty of the Chinese nationalists, in return for the security of the Indo-Pacific, in a way similar to what Churchill was doing concerning British security. Regarding production? Well, with the help of Fred Shedden, the new Secretary of Defense, John did increase war production, but most of the finished products were still earmarked for Britain. It is fair to say that John was in a tight spot and was hoping the British were right about us being weak and that reinforcements were only over the horizon. Unfortunately, neither of these hopes proved true. That brings us to Pearl Harbor the strike that no one expected the Japanese were capable of. Yes, that is the key takeaway. John was aware of my concerns by the 5th of December and was preparing for an imminent attack somewhere in the South Pacific. This was also the calculation of the Americans. They considered locations such as Malaya or the Philippine Islands, but not at the heart of the U.S. fleet in Honolulu. The next day, we attacked Hong Kong, Guam, and Wake Island. Following that, the two major British warships, the battlecruiser HMS Repulse and the battleship HMS Prince of Wales, were sunk in an air attack off Malaya on 10 December 1941. This particularly troubled Canberra, as these two battleships were on their way to reinforce Singapore, and now they lay at the bottom of the Pacific. By that time, February 1942 came into view. We had captured Burma, the Dutch East Indies, New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, Manila, Kuala Lumpur, and Rabaul. What was Prime Minister Curtin's response? It was a chaotic time for John and his war cabinet, with the British battleship sunk and the terror bombing continuing across London. Canberra turned to America. In January, John announced to the nation and the world on a radio broadcast that Australia looks to America, and that we should put all our efforts to the exerting of a plan with America as its keystone. From what I have gleaned from my contacts, FDR was not keen on the announcement. Plus, the president was still even considering a Pacific Theatre Command Center in London, 13,000 kilometers away from the action. John's next major priority was the return of two Australian divisions to aid in the Pacific. They were initially headed to the Dutch East Indies, but after its capture, the men were diverted to Australia. The transport vessels had no escort or air cover during their final leg and would have been easy prey for the Japanese air carrier fleet. Thankfully, both divisions arrived safely in Australia. But we know that Mr. Curtin was not always that lucky. Can you speak on the topic of Singapore and Darwin? The Allies' so-called fortress in Singapore was home to the Australian 8th Division. 
relatively green recruits compared to the boys that had fought in North Africa, and when the Imperial forces began its attack in early February, it was not long until Churchill authorized a surrender of the entire complex. 15,000 Australian sons just handed over to us. You have got to also consider the cultural context of this event. Japan was not a signatory to the Geneva Convention. We considered surrender a face worse than death. Therefore, prisoners of Japan were never going to be treated with any sense of morality, and instead those boys ended up on death marches and in prison camps like Changi. The surrender nearly broke John. It was clear that, unlike the generals, he took every loss personally, very personally. After that, it was not long until the war of words began again. Tojo declared that unless Australia submitted to Japanese authority, they could expect the same fate as the Dutch East Indies. This was believed to be a credible threat at the time. John, however, steeled himself and the nation for the challenge. On 17th of February, at Sydney Hall, he announced that every human being in the country is now, whether he or she likes it, at the service of the government, to work in the defense of Australia. He called for total war, a policy made by Australians for Australians. Canberra had made itself clear to the Empire of Japan, and Tojo responded. Two days after John's speech... 242 aircraft raided the capital of Darwin, killing 236 people, wounding 300, and eliminating 30 aircraft and 11 vessels. The strike made front-page news, with John noting that property damage was also considerable. When was the pivot to all of this, do you think? We are not sitting in an annexed state today. What changed the course of the war? April that year. Up until April, the Allies had been on their back foot in the Pacific with infighting causing chaos amongst the three powers. April is when MacArthur was appointed the Supreme Commander of Allied Forces in the Southwest Pacific area. This moment was what John had been waiting for, a strong voice to plead Australia's case in Washington. You see, a lesser Australian leader might have grated against MacArthur's vanity and protested at his assumption of military command. Curtin did not. He seized the chance to share authority with MacArthur, refused to offend his vanity and draw him as close as he could. Of all John's military decisions, this was by far the cleverest. Once MacArthur was stationed in Brisbane with the full support of his new floating fortress Australia, America began its campaign to go on the offensive. MacArthur got his opportunity in June of that year with the success of the Battle of Midway, followed by the grueling task of stopping the Japanese on land at Kokoda. Both Japan and American forces fought tooth and nail to stop the Japanese from reaching Port Moresby with orders to take Buna or don't come back alive. This was then followed by establishing a toehold in New Guinea with the landing at Guadalcanal in 1943, followed by MacArthur's return to the Philippines in 1944. Island after island had to be burnt out by the Allies, including the home island itself. 
Are, are you okay, Tatsuo? I cannot speak about Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but you understand. It's all too fresh. So much destruction with so little effort. I... It's okay. I, I only have one last question, and we don't have to go into that other place. Tell me about John's death. John had a heart attack in November last year, though like Roosevelt's condition, that information was hidden from the public eye. He returned to work in January, but with the war in its final stages, John's body decided it was also in its final act. He died at the lodge at age 60, with no priest, just his wife and family by his side. I wish I could have seen him one last time before he passed, but the last time we spoke was only days before our nations clashed. I know why he could not visit me, not even once, and I accept that. Chapter 4 The Life of a Rose Sydney Girls High School, Surrey Hills, November 1948 A school bell rings, and a wave of students rush out from room A6 for lunch. You will have to excuse me, dear. Kids today are not as settled as they used to be. No need for excuses, Mrs Rose. I'm just grateful for the time to speak with you. Your stories are going to be an excellent addition to our upcoming 15th anniversary release of Women's Weekly. Well, for starters, please call me Rosie. Everyone but the students call me that. After all, we are going to get into some quite personal stories, yes? So we might as well start on the right foot. Very well, Rosie. Can I start by asking where you were born? I was born in Newcastle, and I am not afraid to say when, as the students often guess my age as 70 years old, 1903 in Newcastle, 10 minutes from Nobby's Beach. As a kid, I used to love waking up to the sound of the waves, although it was a shame that my parents rarely had the time to take me there. My father worked at the docks, and my mother looked after the house and my three younger siblings. As for me, well, I was going to be the first person in our family that was going to attend public school, thanks to the efforts of Mr Barton. Mr Barton? Oh, heavens dear, our first Prime Minister. He championed the need for universal public education, and this became a pillar of our society. Here was an opportunity where I was going to be able to learn to read, write, and support a home just the way my mother did every single day. That was until the accident. Working at the docks was often dangerous business. One day, my father slipped from a gangplank while carrying some heavy cargo. He fell. Dad was not a confident swimmer, and so that cargo dragged him to the bottom of the bay, that was in 1913. I am sorry for your loss. Losing a parent at such a young age is just awful. Even worse when you consider that Dad was the sole person responsible for earning an income for the family. It was only about a fortnight before the landlord kicked us out onto the streets. The only place we could go after that was to live with my aunt and uncle in Sydney, but my dreams of school would not be coming with us. I was given a job at a laundry at age 10. Well, when I say given a job, what I really mean is that Mum dragged me along to her nine-hour shifts, and I sometimes helped her move baskets up and down the halls. I hated that place. So much bleach and steam in the air that your eyes would turn redder than the irons boiling on the stovetops. Did things change when the Great War broke out? For employment opportunities and society as a whole? For some women, yes. Job vacancies at half pay became available in some previously male-only industries, not to mention women were heavily involved in the manufacturing of care packages and equipment for our boys overseas, but people still needed their washing done. Apart from that, things just continued as normal. 
There were only a few protests against the calls for conscription and the imposed austerity measures of the Hughes government, but for most people, including myself, war seemed a world away. Then, once it was over, most just fell back into old routines. So, in your estimate, nothing changed for women after the war? Well, dear, for starters, we need to stop referring to women as one equal group, the same way that you would not conflate the opportunities of a boy from wealth against a dock worker's son. Things were changing, but only at the fringes. That is where you always find the trailblazers, of course. When I left the laundry at age 16 to work in the home of one of these more well-to-do families, I saw exactly what the modern woman was attempting to be. The lady of the house, Mrs Vale, was a flapper, you see. Not a complete flapper. The man of the house, Mr Vale, would have never allowed every sacred boundary to be broken. But in his mind, I think to keep her away from his study during the day, he decided to indulge her. She wore lighter and loose-fitting dresses, with more freedom to play sports such as tennis. Mrs Vale loved tennis, and she and her friends would spend the day playing sport, listening to jazz, and reading magazines. This is where I learned how to read for the first time. You see, Mrs Vale liked to be read to, so she insisted I should learn how to do so, that she could soak up the gossip and homemaker tips while cross-stitching at the same time. This would have all been around the time of the Molly Meadows case in 1922, yes? Yes, of course. What a perfect example of how change was occurring only at the fringes, while society fought the shifts every step of the way, that poor girl in Western Australia. Meadows accused a man, Joseph McAuliffe, of raping her, and an all-male jury initially found him guilty. However, despite the fact that McAuliffe admitted to the rape, with his only defence being that the previous day Meadows had flirted with him, and thus he had been promised intercourse, the guilty verdict caused outrage in the local community, and the rage was so great that a retrial was ordered. The second time, McAuliffe was cleared of the charges. You would have been too young, perhaps, to have heard the reasoning for this decision, but I heard the presiding judge said that if Meadows had indeed kissed and encouraged her attacker, as was reported, she could not be an innocent victim, and further stated that, if that is innocence, then the word has changed its meaning. This was the type of danger modern women were flirting with back in those days, and why it discouraged so many. The laws of the land move slowly, and attitudes even slower. How long did you work for the Vales? Until the crash. Mr Vale was a banker, you see, and turns out spent most of his time in his study being careless, rather than being prudent with his investment diversifications. The Vales had to downsize, and that included firing me when they moved into their smaller apartment in Parramatta. Luckily, I was able to move in with Jack. We got married first, of course, in the white dress borrowed from my mother, and oh, you should have seen him, so handsome in his old military uniform. Jack was a soldier in the Great War, and was new to Sydney when I met him. He was 31. When I first met him, one day walking back from the shops with Mrs Vale's latest collection of magazines, he was working down at the New Harbour Bridge site, moving steel for the welders. Our house was nothing flashy. We found ourselves in the shanty towns around the outskirts of town, and that is where we had our first child, Robert, on December 12th, 1932. Sorry dear, that might have gone off on a bit of a tangent. Not at all, Rosie, it's perfect. A love story is just what our readers are into. Speaking of your readers, I am aware, thanks to the habits developed with Mrs Vale, your company's first edition was released the year after Robert was born. With a piece about the smart women of Sydney, a little tone depth for the time, but what do you expect when you have magazines run by men writing escapism for women? Well, I am certainly trying to be less tone deaf than my predecessors. May I ask if you paid any attention to the politics of the time? I can tell you that since the age of 21, I have never missed the opportunity to cast my vote. Jack would often tell me that simply voting was not enough and that we needed to get more political and ensure the communists would not take over the country. I never really bought into all that stuff. Not until he was called up for service again. He would have been quite old to be a soldier by that time. 
Yes, and that's why he was promoted to the officer corps. It truly was a blessing for our family in a way, and allowed us to afford a small place in Piermont. He worked at the local barracks in the harbour from 1936. Those three years before Jack got deployed were some of the best times of my life. The depression was easing, Robert was a few years off starting school, and our second child Mary was well on the way. I spent most of my time perfecting our home and expanding my reading into all new types of books, which Jack and I agreed would be necessary for Robert's education. Shamefully, I must admit though that most of the books in the early stages were just for me, but I know that Jack didn't care. He was sweet that way. When the war broke out in 1939, where was Jack deployed? Singapore. Oh, Rosie, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean... No, no. It's okay. It was Robert's 10th birthday when we got word that the base had been surrendered to the Japanese. It's painful to imagine what he must have gone through. Even to this day, I have no idea if he ended up in a camp, died on a march, or was worked to the point of complete collapse on some damn railroad. All I got was the same mass-produced letter as every other widow from Mr. Curtin. I, I don't blame him, of course. Mr. Curtin was not the one that gave the order for surrender. What he did galvanised us during that tough time. His government introduced the Widow's Pension Act in 1942, which I needed a great deal to meet the rent. He also pushed the Women's Employment Act that same year, which under the oversight of the Women's Employment Board facilitated the pathway of over 70,000 women into work over the next two years. I was one of them. Laundress, housekeeper, full-time mother, and now a secretary. The local munitions factory needed several people to manage the books and correspondence. I worked six-hour shifts in the office, transcription orders, learning to use the typewriter, and making coffee. It was thrilling to be around other women in a more intellectual setting. In the laundry, you never spoke about anything other than town gossip. In the office, you discussed the war, potential business improvements, and of course, who was getting lunch with who. What did the managers think about your improvements? Oh, we never shared our ideas with management. That was not our place. We were in the business and doing fine work, mind you, but when it came to plans, well, the playbook was being followed to be the same as before. Back to the kitchen, as soon as the men came home. Was there any pushback to this? Well, around 1943 is when I learnt about the Australian Women's Charter. Jean Street, its key contributor, demanded equal economic and political opportunities for women, and I heard that the group produced tens of thousands of copies of the document for distribution. Others pushed back more indirectly. If you were unhappy with your lot in life in Australia, some women decided to move overseas. Not on their own, of course. Their ticket was a ring from an American GI, and my lord did that fire up the locals. That nasty brawl in Brisbane was the result of that. So, Rosie, I can see on the clock that the students will be back soon. So, I have just one more question. How did you end up being a teacher? Well, when the war ended, I was almost like we had a future again. Jack was gone, Robert was 14 and Mary was 10. I was offered the opportunity to stay at the factory, which was going to be retrofitted for making auto parts, but I just felt like it was the right time to think bigger than that. I was now caught up in the ideas of Jessie Street well and truly, reading every issue of the Australian Women's Digest. Why should we be expected to suppress our skills and desires for education? Why are we only worth half the pay of a man? I need answers to these questions. So, I decided to apply for work at the school we find ourselves in today. A place where I can express my passions and look after the home and the family that Jack and I built. Right on time. Thank you again, Rosie, for sharing your experiences. I have no doubt the publisher will be thrilled. Do you have a title? The Life of a Rose. Thank you for listening to Growing Pains.